Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mark Oakley, and I work here at St. Paul's. And I want to give a very warm welcome indeed to each one of you to the cathedral this evening. As we begin our forum's autumn series, The Case for God. I'll introduce our speaker in just a moment, but for those of you who've not been to one of these events before, let me just quickly explain the format. In a moment, Francis Spufford will speak about why, despite everything, Christianity still makes a surprising amount of emotional sense to him and why it might to us and then he's going to answer your questions. If you have a question, please write it on the back of your leaflet and hold it up high to be collected and someone will come and run and take it from you. And please, you can begin holding those up whenever you like. We'll collect the questions up until about 7.30. Please, if you can, try and keep them brief. We'll end promptly at 8 p.m. And Francis's book will be for sale there at the table, over there. And I'm told that for tonight only, only, you have 10% off. And then if you would like the book to be signed, uh, Francis has kindly agreed to sit at this table uh, and he'll sign your books for you. So welcome, and here's to an important contribution as we explore the case for God. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker. Francis Spufford is one of the most diverse writers of our generation. He's written an analysis of the British obsession with polar exploration, a book about engineers, which he describes as being also a stealth history of Britain since 1945. A book which fuses history and fiction about what might have happened if Soviet Russia's economy had flourished. And a wonderful memoir of his childhood as a compulsive reader. He's also, interesting this, the editor of the Chateau Book of the Devil, Francis says his idea of a good project is one which is only just manageable. And he's now turned to Christianity. His new book, Unapologetic, Why, Despite Everything, Christianity Still Makes a Surprising Amount of Emotional Sense, has been out for a few days and is causing a stir on all sides of what we might call the God debate. I will let, of course, Francis introduce his own thought. But for me, this is a very important book, and it's refreshingly and vividly unusual. I believe it clears a way for talking about God without cliché, opening up space to roam and to think fresh things. It is humane, insightful, moving, funny, 
evocative. It's one of those books that make you feel that several little hard full stops in you are slowly being turned into commas, something new being allowed to start. I've worried for a few years now that one past Anglican contribution to theology has become rather dimmed of late, and that's of taking human experience seriously. Francis has put that right with a book, selfishly, I wish I could have written, and which has given me relief and challenge in equal measure. Of scripture, he reads the love between the lines. Of tradition, he turns it over with a hoe, bringing the good stuff to the top that's been out of sight for a little while. Of past and present wrongs in the church, he's forthright. Of himself, he's modest, with a very healthy dose of Anglican irony about him. He is unafraid to feel and unashamed to adore. And he's helped me to see again what it might mean to think critically, laugh and cry honestly, and live faithfully. And I know he will provoke lots of questions in you. And that's why I'm thrilled he is here tonight. So would you please welcome our speaker, Francis Spufford. Thank you. This is a very echoey space. Can you actually hear me? Thank you. I'm the first of a series here. Karen Armstrong is going to talk about Christianity as practice. David Bentley Hart about the role of Christianity in the history of our values and about misrepresentations of this. Timothy Radcliffe is going to talk about Christianity as freedom and as joy. And Brian McLaren is going to talk about the opening of it to new things and new times. But I'm here first. What for? I think I'm here to do the ruder and cruder work of clearing a space for the rest to happen in by talking about why Christianity now is emotionally viable at all. This is what my book, Unapologetic, tries to do. I hope it makes clear the emotional logic that belief can have rather than getting lost in the rather sterile argument that we now seem to have instead, mostly. Um, anyone who has already read Unapologetic will know that it is rather sweary. And I should say here that I'm really not planning to swear my head off in church. And if you feel hard done by by this and feel that you've had all the F words unnaturally withheld from you. I am available on the steps outside and I can swear as much as you like afterwards. 
Anyway, the argument that we seem to be having presently about religion as a culture is hopelessly focused on ideas. This has frustrations to it because um, present-day atheist understandings of Christianity and Christian ideas um, tend to be an amazingly out-of-date caricature. I belong to a church that has been cheerfully at peace with Darwinism for about 150 years now, um, that hasn't believed in hell for many decades, and that um, despite its um, uh, disastrous policy failings here and there about women and gay marriage and the Occupy protest is on the whole almost comically well-meaning. And on the other side there is the other frustration which is that um, what the what the the atheist polemicists take to be knockdown arguments against Christianity are a load of total (laughs) cobblers. Um, I shall skip briefly past um, Richard Dawkins' suggestion that God is very improbable because he couldn't really have evolved. Um, the, um, the, the traditional teapot of Bertrand Russell, which is still orbiting wistfully somewhere around Mars and is supposed to demonstrate that um, belief in God is trivial even if true, although you really don't get books called The Teapot Delusion very often. Um, or Christopher Hitchens' fabulous argument that Martin Luther King can't have been a Christian because he was too nice. Um, in a way, the role of arguments like that is not really to make the case. They don't have to make the case. They only have to be noisy enough for quite a lot of people to think that, you know, not here, but somewhere else nearby, someone very clever has demonstrated that religion is now unscientific and not really compatible with a modern worldview. Um, This is not the case. Um, It's very unscientific to claim priority for one particular philosophical world picture, but not only is it not the case, it's also not the point. Because that is a terrible misunderstanding of the relative role of ideas and feelings in belief. The role of both of them, for one thing, in the life of any actually existing believer. Um, You entertain the ideas because you've had the feelings. You don't generate the feelings because you've signed up to the ideas. It's, It's that way round. So what I want to talk about crudely, but without actual swearing, um, is the pattern of emotions that Christianity makes and why it's not very much like its public image. Um, My sense is that the, the default picture of religion, the one that people 
people act on unreflectingly um, is that it is a rather smug celebration of virtue hedged around with judgments. It is about dividing the world into, um, into the saved and the damned. It is, about, um, it is about looking askance at ordinary human pleasures, particularly the sexual ones. Um, so if I say instead that it seems to me to be a religion whose great strength is the way that it embraces the messiness and untidiness of human experience, that sounds rather strange. Back a step. Christianity is not one of the law religions. Both its older sister, Judaism, and its younger sister, Islam, are religions which ask human beings to act out the will of God in the world by following a set of rules. Um, quite moderate, achievable, sustainable rules. The idea is that, that everybody can do them. That, you, know, you don't have to be a saint in Judaism or Islam um, in order to know that you're being an adequately good person, which, as I say, um, has the virtues of, of moderation about it, but it does depend on dividing human actions up into the ones you should do and the ones you shouldn't do. Christianity does something different. It, in its 2,000 years of history, has generated sets of laws from time to time, but they aren't central. What is central in Christianity is a set of frankly impossible demands. Um, Christianity does not tell you what to eat and what to wear. It doesn't tell you to, to, to be halal or to eat kosher. Um, it tells you to love your neighbor as yourself. It tells you to take no thought for the morrow. It tells you that if somebody um, asks, for your, asks for your jacket, you should give them your trousers too. And then it provides very little guidance about how you're actually supposed to carry this out in a world of finite resources, finite emotional energy, consequences. Um, so far, so very, 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 very unrealistic. Um, but the result is that, that everybody fails. And this is where it starts to become realistic in its pessimism, I think. If the standard of human behavior you're supposed to live up to is this standard of impossible generosity, of kind of heedless self-giving, then really everybody fails. Um, we are all failures together. And Christianity is quite canny about how to live with the inevitable failure that results. I should say, since I'm standing in an immense piece of architectural grandeur here, that none of the visible apparatus of Christianity makes the slightest difference to our ability to do what it asks us to do. The grandeur of the boxes we create to celebrate God does not give us one bit of advantage in doing the impossible. We try, we fail, we're all failures together. Christianity begins in 
pessimism, although it doesn't end there. It is attuned to the tragedy and the stumbling and the, the cack-handed malevolence of the human condition. And, accordingly, its foundational scripture spends more time condemning self-righteousness than anything else. Jesus scarcely mentions anything to do with sexuality. It's as if it's just not very important to God. Whereas self-righteousness, on he goes, and on, and on. He appears to think that those who consider themselves virtuous are far more dangerous than those who do one thing or another in the bedroom. But this is not very welcome news. To be told that whatever you do, you're sure to mess up is not very well in accord with the way that our culture works at the moment, which would like to believe that our lives are made out of nice, malleable stuff that will answer our intentions, that will let us be what we want to be, because you're worth it, like the L'Oreal advert. Um, Christianity still thinks you're worth it, but not because you deserve it. And I spend some time in the book talking about the inanity of the famous atheist bus. Not because I think it represents the whole of what all atheists think about the world. Not because I think that the British public on the whole subscribe to the worldview of Professor Dawkins, but because in this one, in this one instance, the, the hardcore hobbyists of unbelief who get such a lot of fun out of thinking about other people's faith um, are, I think, merely voicing something close to conventional wisdom. The atheist bus says, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. The dangerous word here is enjoy. Not because enjoy has anything wrong with it. Enjoyment is good. The more enjoyment, the better. I'm not making some kind of strange puritanical objection to enjoyment. But enjoyment is one emotion. The only things that can be enjoyed and nothing else are products. And our lives are not products. Our lives are continua in which we are likely to feel rage, sorrow, disappointment, hope, anxiety, nervousness, and on and on and on and on. And to say that our lives should be enjoyed is to, is to reduce the dimensions in which they operate, to suggest that a kind, of, a kind of flatness suitable to, to the, the desires of the marketing department actually, actually rules. Of course, there is some logic here, and it goes like this, um, that religion keeps people in a state of anxious terror, um, that religion's only emotional content is bigotry, hatred, fear, anxiety, and it causes people to hate themselves. So, um, since, dear sample person who sees the atheist bus go past, you are worrying enormously about whether you're going to be damned, despite the fact the church hasn't believed in that for a very long time, 
um, you'll be relieved. You'll be relieved to know that there is no danger of that. And so you'll, you'll return to your, to your natural state of sunny enjoyment. I find this completely improbable as a view of people. I also think, what kind of idiot thinks that being worried by religion is the primary besetting anxiety of the modern world? I, mean, I know that, that they tend to look at religion through magnifying glasses, which make it seem very big and oppressive, whereas actually it's not that big at the moment. Um, but also, what a weird set of what a weird set of emotional priorities. All right, let's 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 wish religion away. Let us grant that this church is absolutely empty, that it's just a big fancy 18th century piece of pomp, and that up at the east end there there is nothing but some but some pretty glass. Do we, do we attain a state of unworried peace? No, because we are still stuck with the plight of being ourselves. Now, there are a lot of different paths towards the discovery of faith. Um, I followed one in the book, which is easier for me because it's, because it's mine, but it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a common one. Um, in my experience, although faith can begin in awe, it can, believe, it can begin in, in a sense of, of consolation that blows in like weather and startles you out of nowhere, but more common in some respects is just to reach one of the points in life where you are irresistibly reminded that you've messed up, as I shall put it in church. And at those moments, which I think are universal, unless your life is extraordinarily lucky, or you are leading your life in an extraordinarily oblivious way, you discover yourself as a being who does not fit easily with your own wishes. A being who acts against yourself as often as you act for yourself. Who is resistant to your own best intentions. Who, whatever the line is that your society and you yourself draw between the good and the bad, are some of the time voting haplessly on both sides of it. Again, this is not a very welcome discovery in our time, although it is an extremely ancient one. You can find it dotted all the way through the Psalms. But my sense is that we need to acknowledge among other things, our ability to do harm. Otherwise, we are dealing in cartoon versions of ourself. It also prevents us from understanding our lives properly. The only way for your life to be a story with consequences in it, rather than, for example, an extended shopping trip, is to grant yourself your full moral stature, which includes your ability to do wrong. Um, if, 
you look at if you look at the way that that we presently do moral judgments they're only allowed to be explicit when they're right over there when we're dealing with people so evil that we don't have the anxious problem of seeing connection between us and them um child molesters can be evil um mass murderers can be evil but that is a sort of special moral zoo it's got nothing to do with where we live the the bad news of christianity from which the good news eventually follows is that actually there is no separate zoo there is no special district of uncleanness over there which lets the rest of us be scrubbed white we are all unclean all in need of mercy as a result um it also doesn't help that um our vocabulary for talking about these things has been blurred and smeared um the word sin at the moment um is usually a brand name for ice cream um or for red lingerie um or sex toys or nightclubs um Frank Miller's comic book Sin City um is set in a place where the population are entirely devoted to either lap dancing or extreme violence. The word actually gets in the way of of our self-recognition. But there it still is, the old tough pessimistic ultimately kindly thinking which takes us seriously enough to suppose that we've messed up look at the first two lines of amazing grace which most people still know um amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me and you get to wretch and people go ooh no 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 beating himself up in public that's you know that's that just goes to show that religion generates self-hatred um you know distrust of your own natural impulses but the author of amazing grace was a slave trader the difficulty being that he was still a slave trader when he wrote amazing grace and only gradually worked his way out of it but again we do when we come down to it agree that there are things we do wrong that we ought to take seriously and there that language is waiting for us at the junctures in adult life when you just can't help noticing that in one way or another you've messed up um there are the classic big occasions of adult disaster when a marriage goes wrong when you fail to go on seeing a child who you only see on saturday afternoons um when you discover that your little recreational drug habit isn't that recreational anymore and so on and so forth but it can also just happen at a point where one more one more day falls on the snowdrift of other days and you realize that what you are and what you're doing doesn't bear any resemblance to what you thought you wanted and what you thought you were trying to do and at bad times like that as famously in foxholes on battlefields people try the experiment of turning towards the empty space where they think almost certainly there's nobody 
and asking for help. And then nothing happens. Um, this is as true for believers as it is for, for non-believers. You listen and listen and yeah, nothing happens. But most people who end up being believers tend to recognize in retrospect that although nothing began when they asked for help, something may have been going on all the time which they were gradually enabled to hear happening. Um, I'm going to have to read a piece of my book here because I have tried to describe what an experience of the presence of God is like. I could barely manage to do it adequately once. In fact, I don't think I have quite, but I certainly can't improvise another whole version all over again while standing here. So I'm afraid you're going to get an extended quotation from the book because this is what I can point to. From one point of view, featherweight, as questionable as any emotion that anyone ever has. But as people who have been there and have shared experiences like this tend to know, um, no matter how elusive it is, that doesn't mean it's weak. That doesn't mean it doesn't have the power to rearrange your life once it's happened. Now, I'm not describing a conversion experience here. I am describing, you know, put together from lots of little separate experiences in my life, a kind of sample version of what can happen if you make yourself quiet enough to listen once you've taken your need for help before the gaze of almost certainly nothing. Because, you know, that's not very modern to think there's anything there. The noisiness of our present world is an obstacle here. The noisiness inside our heads and the incredible reserves of distractions that we have available to us, also a problem. But luckily, there are these specialized buildings around the place which make listening easier we're in one the calm in here is not denial it's an ancient imperturbable lack of surprise to any conceivable act you might have committed the building is set up only to say ah so you have so you did yes would you like to sit down I sit down. I shut my eyes. Churches are vessels of hush as well as everything else they are. And when I block out the distractions of vision, the silence is almost shockingly loud. It sings in my ears, no. Metaphors are inevitable here, but we might as well try to use them accurately and to prune out the implications we don't want. The silence has no tune. It doesn't sing. It hisses, it whines thinly at a high constant pitch as if the world had a background note that we don't usually hear. It crackles like the empty grooves at the end of a vinyl record when the song is over and all that's left to hear is the null track of the medium itself, which is welcome because it's the unending song of myself that I've come in here to get a break from. 
I breathe in, I breathe out. I breathe in, I breathe out. I breathe in, I breathe out. Noticing the action of my lungs swelling and compressing. Swelling and compressing much more than I usually do. And so far as I have to have something to concentrate on, I concentrate on that, just that. The in and out of my breath, trying to think of nothing else but the air moving. I do my best to step away from my thoughts when they come. And they do come. I'm not trying to clamp them down. Every so often I find I've strayed off from the breathing along some loop of associations or memories. And that's fine. When I find that that's what I'm doing, I step away from the thought loop. I leave it be, back to the simple process of breath. I know that my whole lumpy, complicated, half-known self is still there, but I'm not trying to put it in order. I'm not trying to arrange it flatteringly so that it tells some creditable story of me, or just as bad, just as effortful, unflatteringly so that it neatly accuses me. I'm deliberately abandoning the enterprise of making sense of myself. I breathe in. I breathe out. The silence hisses, neither expectantly nor unexpectantly. And in it, I start to pick out more and more noises that were too quiet for me to have attended to them before. I become intensely aware of small things happening in the space around me that I can't see. I hear a blue bottle blundering by somewhere above. I hear the intermittent murmur of a conversation going on. I hear the sailcloth flap of a single piece of paper being turned over in the organ loft. And I, I start to hear things outside the church too. A passing plane, a bird in a tree, a car's ignition coughing awake, the patter and tap of a leafy branch that the breeze is brushing against one of the windows two street drinkers somewhere arguing. Far off motorway roar that I must hear all the time and cancel from my consciousness usually. Layer upon layer of near sounds and far sounds, none of them predictable by me, none of them under my control. The audio assemblage of the world getting on perfectly well without me. The world sounding the same as it did before I was born and the same as it will do after I'm dead. I expand. Not seeing, I feel the close grain of the hardwood I'm sitting on, the gritty solidity of the stone pillar my arm touches. I feel their real weight. I sense the labor that made them. I know their separateness from me, and my mind moves outwards to the real substances of things that are not me beyond the church walls. I feel the churchyard grass repeating millionfold the soft green spire of each blade, and the tarmac of the road compressed like cold chewing gum and the scratchy roughness of each red suburban brick. Out and out and out, the streets of the town unreeling faster and faster into the particular pattern of fields beyond and the viridian tie-dye of those fields seen from above and receding higher and higher, the island seen whole in mottled greens and browns, the limb of the planet shining in electric blue, the ash-coloured moon the boiling chemical clouds of the gas giants, the shining pinprick of our star, the radiant drift of the western spiral arm, the plug-hole spin of one galaxy, the flying splotches of others, uncountably many, flinging out into a darkness which is itself expanding, and all, all of it, as locally real and solid and intricate as the time-darkened, bottom-polished oak plank beneath me. Breathe in, breathe out. Yes.
time. Expand again, not from this particular place, but this particular moment, this perch on one real instant in the flood of real instants. Breathe in, breathe out. Day opens the daisies, sucks carbon into every leaf, toasts the land, raises moisturous clouds. Night closes flowers, throws the switch for rest in mobile creatures, condenses dew, pulls the winds that day has pushed. Breathe. Day cycles into light. Light cycles into dark as the earth turns. And this cycle measured in hours spins inside others nested in weeks and years and eons, building a spirograph of change of which the world is made as truly as it's made of matter organized in a sphere. The fields flash green, yellow, brown with the seasons. The forests ebb and flow. The hills themselves melt like wax. The ice advances and retreats. Ocean covers this spot with sunlit shallows or anoxic black depths. The carbon fixed by a trillion tiny swimmers hardens as limestone and erodes gently to gas again. Natural selection whittles new creatures from old with its blunt knife. And it's all real. The moments that happen already to have happened were as capacious, as strutted and braced with true existence as this one in which I am momentarily sitting here. And the moments which happen not to have happened yet will be in their turn as truly and encompassingly the one single existent entire state of things just for a moment. This instant at which I sit is as narrow a slice of the reality of the whole as a hairline crack would be in a pavement that reaches to the stars. The real immensities of time and of space merge, are, always were, the same real immensity. But now it gets indescribable. Now I register something that precedes all of this manifold immensity that is not me and yet is real. Something makes itself felt from beyond or behind or beneath it all. What can beyond or behind or beneath mean when all possible directions or dimensions are already included in the sum of what is so? I don't know. I've only got metaphors to work with, and this is where metaphor, which compares one existing thing to another existing thing, is being asked to reach beyond its competence. Beyond, again. But I'm not talking about movement through or out of any of the shapes of existing things. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about a movement through or out of shape altogether, yet not into, not into vacuum, not into emptiness, into, into fullness, rather, into an adjacent fullness, no further away than the thickness of everything, which feels now as if in this direction that can't be stated, it is no thickness at all. It, it feels as if, considered this way, every solid thing is as thin as a film in its particular being, and is backed onto some medium in which the journey my attention's been taking towards greater and greater solidity, richer and richer presence, reaches an absolute. What's in front is real. What's behind is the reason for it being real, the source of its realness. Beyond, behind, beneath all solid things, there seems to be solidity. 
behind, beneath, beyond all changes, all wheeling and whirring processes, all flows, there seems to be flow itself. And though I'm in the dark behind my closed eyelids and light is part of the everything, it feels as if I'm feeling beyond, so it can only be a metaphor here, it seems to shine this universal backing to things with lightless light or dark light. Choose your paradox. It feels as if everything is backed with light. Everything floats on a sea of light. Everything is just a surface feature of the light. And that includes me. Every tricky thing I am, my sprawling piles of memories and secrets and misunderstandings float on the sea, are local corrugations and whirls with the limitless light just behind. And now I've forgotten to breathe because the shining something an infinitesimal distance away out of the universe is breathing in me and through me. And though the experience is grand beyond my powers to convey, it's not impersonal. Someone, not something, is here though it's on a scale that defeats imagining and exists without location or in all locations at once, I feel what I feel when there's someone beside me. I am being looked at. I am being known. Known in some wholly accurate and complete way that is only possible when the point of view is not another local self in the world, but glows in the whole medium in which I live and move. I'm being seen from inside, but without any of my own illusions. I'm being seen from behind, beneath, beyond. I'm being read by what I am made of. On one level, I can feel that this is absolutely safe. A, a parent's safe hold is nothing compared to this. I'm being carried on the universe's shoulder. But on another level, it's terrifying being screened off by my separateness is all I know in my dealings with somebodies who look at me. This is utterly exposed. And while it may be safe, it is not kind in one of the primary ways in which human beings set about being kind to each other. It takes no account at all of my illusions about myself. It lays me out roofless, wallless, worse than naked. It knows where my kindness comes checkered with secret cruelties or mockeries. It knows where my love comes with reservations. It knows where I hate and fear and despise. It knows what I indulge in. It knows what parasitic colonies of habit I have allowed to form in me. It knows the best of me, which may well not be what I am proud of, and the worst of me, which is not necessarily what it has occurred to me to be ashamed of. It knows what I have forgotten. It knows all of this. And it shines at me. In fact, it never stops shining. It is continuous, this attention it pays. I cannot make it turn away, but I can turn away from it easily. All I have to do is to stop listening to the gentle, unendingly patient call it stitches through the fabric of everything there is. It compels nothing. So all I have to do is to stop paying attention. And I do, after not very long, I can't bear for very long at once to be seen like that. To be seen like that is judgment in itself. As a long ago letter writer put it, someone who clearly went where I've just been, 
It is terrible to fall into the hands of the living God. Only to be seen like that is forgiveness to, or at any rate, the essential beginning of forgiveness. And when I come back from the place where the metaphors end and the light behind light shines and I open my eyes in the quiet church, for a little while everything I see glows as if it were lamplit from inside and every flowing particle of the whole gleams in its separate grains, gleams as if it were treasured. Now, that doesn't go into the scales against an argument. It can't be disproved, though it can easily be explained away. And I can see all of the obvious physical explanations as well as anybody else can. But so what? Um, I'm a physical creature. It's, it's hard to see how I would ever feel anything that didn't come to me physically as a body in space. There is a lot more to say. In particular, there is the whole huge issue of how one gets from what I can certainly see is a piece of bog-standard transcendence to anything specifically Christian. That is an experience which would be recognized by anyone from any religion. And perhaps something I hope we can talk about in a minute is why I feel that it fits into the compelling, kindly, pessimistic pattern of impossibilities of Christianity. But I think at this point I should probably stop and go and sit down. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, please do write your questions, hold them up on your white sheet, and just in case some of you think I'm catching up with casualty on iPlayer here, um, what's happening is your questions are being filtered through um, with high tech here, and I'm going to filter your questions because sometimes there's lots of overlaps, and uh, so they're going to be put together. They're coming up, some great questions coming in, Francis. Oh, and I, I just wanted to start by asking, it, it's a bit of a personal question this, so forgive mm. me, but I, th I want to ask it. This feels to me uh, like it was a, a more precarious project for you, writing this book. Uh, and if so, why? It was, it was certainly precarious. Um, but it seemed to me that you couldn't talk about why a religion makes sense as a, you know, a house built from feelings without talking about what the feelings were. And feelings tend to be possessed by humans one at a time. I was my own best sample. Also, it, it seemed to me that the barrier of embarrassment there is in our culture at the moment in talking about religion actually required someone to be daft enough to fling themselves over it and not be afraid of making a fool of themselves. Um, it is in the undignified nature of religion that you run the risk of making a fool of yourself. Um, 
if you insist on keeping your dignity, then you keep most things out, in my experience. So it had to be, it had to be an undignified book, um, as part, I hope, of being a truthful book. Um, and it was precarious in other ways too, because, and I've just read you one of the most precarious bits of it. It is obviously impossible to describe the presence of God. So that was a failure. It had to be. It had to be a failure. Um, on the other hand, as with the rest of Christianity, you don't get let off trying to do the impossible stuff just because it's impossible. So I thought that um, failing interestingly would at least be helpful. Um, other forms of precariousness. Um, well, I have a track record of writing bizarre books, so um, in some ways I have form doing things like, like this. Um, it's also precarious. It's slightly precarious, precarious for me as, as a quietly practicing Christian, given that things settle into the order they have in a life, and there's something potentially distorting about getting all loud about it, about trying to communicate it, about pushing it into shapes where other people will get it. That's not how it exists in my head. That's a, a kind of synthetic counterpart to what I feel and feel that I know and feel I know because I feel it. Um, I've had to, it, on some level, it feels as if I'm in danger of faking it just by tidying it up enough to describe it. That's precarious. Thank you. I'm going to go straight in uh, with some questions that have, have come through. Um, if Christianity works emotionally, mm. why isn't it more popular? <laughs> uh, because it's often not very well described. Because it does exist on the other side of a barrier of embarrassment at the moment. Um, and because its public face, including the really well-meaning bits of its public face, the way it does social justice stuff, for example, um, often has the unwanted consequence of making it look as if you can understand it at a glance, that it's a form of, you know, kind of ethical social work. When, when it isn't, it's far odder than that um, and more surprising and more countercultural than that. Um, but it really is quite difficult to represent what's, what's surprising in a way that the world will stop and listen to. Um, there are ten ways of closing down a conversation about religion for every one of starting one and opening it up. Also, I mean, one reason why the, why the book has turned out, well, sweary, really, um, is that I wanted to disrupt 
people's sense that religion happens in this defensively nice, almost prissy tone, which is, again, an unwanted consequence of the fact that those who speak for religion, because they are priests or bishops or whatever, are actually required to pay attention to the needs of those they're talking to, to be what other people need them to be. I'm not a spokesman for anything. I'm just, I'm just a lay person. So I can wave my arms and shout and be striking without having to worry about somebody writing, writing a headline, without somebody closing down in any of the obvious ways the conversation. And one of, one of the dangers of the kind of the public voice of Christianity is that people mistake it for a kind of, a kind of solemn hush. And a solemn hush, as we all know, is, is a kind of invitation for a whoopee cushion. Um, a solemn hush strikes an awful lot of people now as, as the straight man's feed line for the ba-boom of whatever it is you want to say back. We are not in a culture that is very good at quiet stuff and a whole lot of people sitting with their eyes shut being quiet positively invite somebody to make a defiant raspberry and watch people fall around happily, um, fall around you know, in a kind of pleasing way. Um, It's all, it's all painfully inward. What a bunch of people in a parish church are actually doing at communion is not necessarily visible from the outside of the tin, particularly if you don't share the cultural codes in which it's happening, which is a reason why I tried, so far as I could, to re-describe everything that the book deals with with nothing taken for granted as if from scratch as if you didn't need to know anything at all um, and I tried to make the language constantly surprising mm -hmm. and as fresh as I could make it so that it didn't disappear against the backdrop so that it didn't turn into a kind of comedy vicar act I think actually one of the great advantages of the Church of England having women priests is that it is now impossible for people to think that vicars are Derek Nimmo anymore. Um, but that danger is still there, that there is a kind of public mildness, which is the most misleading outer face for, for the kind of crazy impossibilism of what's going on inside, inside the box. Over and over again, what I'm, what I'm trying to argue is that Christianity says... God does not want your well-behaved virtue. God wants your reckless generosity. He wants you to do the mad stuff, to take risks, to, to believe in the possibility of being suddenly transformed, of, of climbing up a tree as a sinner and coming back down as a saint. Um, hmm. Not sensible, but disguised as sensible somehow. You certainly warn people off caution, don't you? And, uh, I think caution is a greatly overrated um, <laughs> quality, except in bankers. <laughs> I'm moving on to the other questions that have come in. If we, somebody's written, if we have the first feelings, like mm. you just described, yep. very movingly, and then they seem to disappear, mm. how can we nurture them? 
Do we have to go to church? And this ties in a little bit with another one. Is worship a requirement of Christianity or a distraction? Ooh. There's two elements there. Yes. But the first, how can we nurture these first feelings if they seem to, to disappear? It is in the nature of them that they cannot be commanded. And any attempt to kind of turn to face them um, as they hover at the corner of your eye or to brush them up or to strengthen them or to give them a surreptitious injection of descriptive steroids to make them better causes them to flee and vanish. They have to be waited for patiently. Um, and you also spend far more time reflecting on what you have felt once and wondering if you really felt it than you do in any kind of intense, direct experience of God. Um, which is why religion does not just consist of um, the things we happen to feel, of, 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 of waiting on the spirit to move you. Um, religion is also a series of things you do, and you do them because, another countercultural bit of religion, because we aren't just spontaneous creatures, we're also creatures of habit, and to be something requires you to scratch as far as you can the pattern of that something into the resistant material of time to go round the year going, oh, it's Christmas, oh, it's Easter. Um, do we need to worship? God doesn't need us to worship. God is sufficient and complete and quite content being generous and one of the potent misunderstandings of religion is that it involves bowing and scraping and humiliating yourself and making yourself feel small. Well, no, because God is the only being whose majesty is not extracted from the submission of other beings. Kings, emperors, pontiffs, all completely misleading comparisons for God. God is not another ape like us who wants us to kneel down so that he can be, be big. God just is big. Any worshipping you do is offered by us because it feels like the right thing to do. However, there are things the church does which are not just a matter of saying, thank you very much, there you are. In particular, the church does this thing with the bread and the wine, which is central and central to trying to join ourselves to our central story. What I've described there is missing a huge bit to do with God in history and to do with how, as Christians, we understand suffering and and sorrow. And, uh, so can we pursue that? Because yeah. this big and generous God mm. who is more attractive when we're thinking about these are a few of my favorite things, sunsets yeah, and yeah. kittens. But how does, and somebody's asked this, how does the existence of God square with terrible suffering, e.g., the person has written locked-in syndrome yes. or a teenager dying from cancer? Absolutely. Um, the short answer is that it doesn't very well, that none of the theological explanations are 
any good at all. They all tend to have some grain of useful truth in them, but they are all incomplete and they all fall flat, gasping in the dust in the end. Um, the ways of God to, to man and woman cannot, in my opinion, be, be adequately justified. Um, indeed, believing there's a loving God there actually makes the cruelties of the world worse, not better, worse. Consolation is, is, is kind of hard to find, even harder to find if you're trying to square something like locked-in syndrome um, or many other hopeless situations in which God signally fails to intervene. Um, I'm reminded of the Woody Allen joke. It's not that I think God is evil, it's just that I think he's an underachiever. Um, God does not interrupt the worst that humans can do to each other, not to mention all of the various ways in which the biosphere seems pretty cruel. Um, alongside the kittens, there's the anthrax and the cancer. Um, and what Christianity does about this is essentially to throw its hands in the air and say we don't know why this happens we can't see how we can possibly believe that God is in his heaven and all is well with the world omnipotence if it exists clearly doesn't work on terms that we find very easy to understand but we have this central story. I don't use story to mean myth or untruth. I mean that it's organized as a story, which is important for human beings, about God with us, about the generosity next door entering the world, being in it with us, suffering the consequence of the world's usual processes, um, attempting to offer reckless generosity and suffering all of the ordinary worldly consequence of it. And somehow in that act, not taking sorrow from us, not taking suffering from us, because there those things are still going, but taking the weight of guilt for them from us announcing that although he isn't a king he is large enough and wide enough to take all of the weight of the terrible things humans do to each other that it can be it can be loaded onto the generosity next door and that we can at least feel ourselves loved and forgiven and kept company with no matter what happens. Jesus never promises that if you do what it says in the Beatitudes, you will thrive in the world and that everything will be okay. He doesn't say, if you love without reservation, um, I will arrange it so that um, actually your business grows. Um, he doesn't do that. Um, there are no promises of that kind. There is only the promise that having been loved unto death and through death we will ourselves be loved unto death that there is no situation in which we will ever be abandoned though the kind of love we're given may not 
always be the easiest kind to receive. Having worked for a while in, in a hospice as a chaplain, I mean, I, I know that one of the consolations for many people in suffering is to believe in life after mm. death. And somebody has written that in the book you say you don't believe in life after death. Why not? Doesn't Jesus promise it? Jesus promises... Okay, first let me clarify slightly. I don't disbelieve in life after death. I don't know about it. It is not yet part of Christianity that makes pressing emotional sense to me. Um, I am open... I'm open to turning out to be wrong about this. Um, What I do know is that it makes sufficient sense already for me without it. That I am not being bought off with an express ticket out of this veil of tears. If it turns out that the love of God means in the end that there is more than this, then good. Um... But it's not, it's not why I believe, and it's not how I take that promise of Jesus's. I am come that you may have life in abundance, and life restricted, which life in abundance would be the opposite of, can happen in a great many different ways, and only one of them is chronological. Only one has to do with only getting 41, 62, 73, 101 years to live it in. Um, There are crampings to life which seem to me to press much more immediately right here and right now. And as I say in the book, I don't believe because I want or at the moment expect to have an unlimited future. I believe because I have a past and which is absolutely certain I really do and I have a present which I wish to be able to live with as much grace as possible and with as much freedom as possible from my own inevitable screw-ups. Not swearing again. So for the moment, it's enough to, uh, to believe Christian aids, we believe in life before death, mm. but you're willing to be surprised. I guess I'm willing to be surprised. I've been surprised If you're not already. surprised, you know you were right, because there's no life after death. <laughs> yes, but I think Pascal's wager is, is much too actuarial. I haven't so far discovered that God is in any way like an insurance company, so um, I would be surprised if this bit turned out to be like that either. So tell us then what you mean by the resurrection. I mean, somebody has written, do you believe that you have to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian? What's your interpretation I of think it's hard. I think it would be hard to be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection. Um, because the resurrection is what turns the story from a tragedy into a story of hope reached through tragedy. I do believe in the resurrection. Um, I think what the resurrection, well, what do I know what the resurrection is showing us? One of the things I feel the resurrection is showing us um, is that God is capable of far more grace, far more mending, far more retrieval 
than in our ordinary cautious modes of perception we want to let him be have be capable of um, I think the story again I don't mean story is untruth just something organized from beginning to end the story of the crucifixion makes sense because it goes all the way to despair because it's not the story of a supernatural personage being temporarily inconvenienced. It has to be the story of love going where, where we go when everything fails. It's, it's the story of things pushed to the limit where everything breaks, including Jesus, who cries out line one of Psalm 22 from the cross, and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, and there are various, in some ways Christians are much too quick with the paradoxes. It's very easy to tidy this up and go, kind of, oh, you see, this is how Christ inhabits our despair as well, in a very real sense. Um, but no, that's, that's just despair. That's as, that's as messy and untidy as any moment of despair that we experience. Um, it would be wrong to, to neaten it up into, into station number 7B of a journey which is always going somewhere happy. Jesus has to despair. The cross has to be a real death. Um, he has to think that he's got it wrong. He has to think that the whole business of, of carrying the sins of the world turns out to be a bad joke at the end so that two days later on Easter morning um, there can be a complete reversal of the ordinary order of the world in which death is stronger than love. Love being stronger than death is a very big deal and it only attains its weight if we keep our eyes on the truth that death is usually stronger than love. If you, if you wear one of these things and you stand at, waiting for a number 13 bus, somebody will quite often ask you, do you believe in the empty tomb? Do you mm. believe that Jesus appeared to his disciples, as it says mm. in the resurrection accounts? How would you answer that? Uh, Yes. Right. That's, that's kind of it, really. Um, so, so God is an interventionist. God was an interventionist that time. Uh -huh. That, it seems to me, is the moment when the ordinary course of the world gets turned on its head. Um, I mean, there's Lazarus as well. I don't know what I think about Lazarus. Mm. Um, you could say, if you can swallow one resurrection, why not many? Um, but but I'll stick with the one I, I, I feel I've got some kind of handle on at the moment and yes, empty tomb yes, Easter morning yes, resurrection um, I'm not I'm not terribly interested in the idea of a Christianity reduced to some kind of handy source of, of ethical advice one of the great traditions of of the 
dwindling of Christianity over the last two centuries has been the desire to separate out Jesus, the palpably nice guy, from Christ, the rather worrying figure from organized religion. Philip Pullman is the latest in a sequence of people who would quite like to split that figure one way or the other. Um, But actually, Jesus does not make a lot of sense, in my opinion, as uh, a kind of ordinary, all-round nice guy and and ethical advisor. Um, The whole 19th century kind of Unitarian idea of him as a great moral teacher is again cobblers because because his advice is rubbish considered as advice that will help you thrive in the world and as I say in the book I mean great moral teachers are interested in respecting your parents and um, making societies cohere with good laws and um, getting people to see themselves as accountable individuals rather than part of a tribe um, or working out what our obligations to our neighbours are. Um, instead of which, you've got this, you've got this wild-eyed rabbi um, who, who thinks that your obligations are to absolutely everybody and have, and have no end, who when asked, who is, who is our neighbour, turns the thing on its head and goes, well, anyone you can manage to be loving to, actually, which, if you look, has just handily had the back wall removed, so the vista just goes on and on and on and on into generosity and impossibility. And so this is why Jesus never tells you what the kingdom is. He only will ever say what it is like. Yes. Um, the, The kingdom, which exists as an endless series of of comparisons in the Gospels Mm. Um, is this thing which only appears to be able to exist here in momentary likenesses and yet we are still obliged to to strive for us to strive for it We, we have to try and work out what it is that a mustard seed has in common with having to bang on someone's door in the middle of the night to borrow a loaf um, and, and all the other comparisons. Mm. And then we need to attempt the impossible act of trying to see each other as a limitless generosity would. Um, ignoring all the cues which our particular species of upright apes jumps to recognize to do with authority or attractiveness or charisma um, or being a good talker or any of those things because as I see it or feel it what the what what that quiet shining presence wants is for us to try and fail and try again to see each other as limitlessly precious so you say yes to resurrection yeah. but no to hell it's, uh, damnation. Somebody said, I thought the church did still believe in damnation. Have you said it doesn't just because it doesn't suit your emotional state or belief? Um, I'm going I'm to consult a priest. Does the church believe in hell? <laughs> well, very fortunately, I'm not here to be a spokesman for the Church of England this evening. Um, I'm not the church. I mean, no. I'm a Christian as part of the church. Well, and I people too. believe lots of different things. This can... 
brings us back, doesn't it, to the fact that we have creedal statements, mm. which we all recite, but every time we recite it, there's a different interpretation going on all over the cathedral yeah. as it's being said. Yeah. So for some people, um, a judgment mm. means the scales, hell, yeah. the medieval picture. For me, it's always, I've always thought judgment is actually ultimately a liberating thing. Somebody's actually telling you who you are. Mm. And therefore, I believe judgment is not damnation, it's salvation. Yes. And we're, if you like, we're sort of condemned by our sins, not for, for our sins. Yes. But that's my interpretation, and mm. that person they will have another one. But um, Yes, I too am ju just a Christian rather than a spokesman for the church. However, um, my very strong impression is certainly that, um, that since... The 1940s or 50s, mm. hell has not featured very much at all in our understanding of our creeds. And that the reasons for this are not because we are a bunch of wusses who don't like the nasty brimstone smelling stuff in our inheritance, um, but because we have caught up with the fundamental incompatibility between hell as a place of perpetual punishment um, and our picture of God as a being of unending mercy and yes there are various forms of fancy footwork that let you say oh, we condemn ourselves to hell, free will requires us to be able to refuse the generosity of God and there are psychological truths in, in all of that but it seems to me that the role of hell in the past has usually been as a way of tidying up um, the inconvenient abundance of, of divine forgiveness and trying to push it back towards human common sense, which runs much more naturally in, in judicial categories. Um, mostly, I, Rowan Williams said at one point that it's quite easy to imagine God loving me, but why he loves this other lot is always a bit of a challenge. Um, in the same way, it's always very easy to think we deserve divine forgiveness, but um, when it comes to insert the villain of your choice there, then vengeance is clearly appropriate. Um, and it seems to me that, that the Christ of the Gospels is constantly urging us towards a sense of the insufficiency of this. That's why he's telling the parable about the day labourers um, uh, who all get the same even if they've only turned up half an hour before, before the end of the day, which is really unfair in human terms. Um, I think that's an announcement that God reserves the right to give us more than we deserve in all circumstances. I've got Two more questions, which, so if we can be fairly brief so that we can fit them both in. Um, you quoted Rowan Williams, and Elizabeth Foy uh, reminded me the other day that Rowan Williams once said that the church has a supernatural ability to show its worst face to the world. Yep. I want to talk about the church a bit, because for all your punchy um, passion and um, fruity language, I sensed you might like to see a more plausible church but also a more humble church. Yes. I, I think of Aquinas' phrase, companion, companionable modesty. 
Yes. What would that church look like and what needs to happen to get it? A more humble church. Um, I'm all right. I'm going to resist the urge to take refuge in the I am a simple layman line <laughs> here. Um, it's a more complicated question than it sounds because we don't have the luxury of taking refuge in being pure. Um, purity is not available to us as sinners. Purity is not available to us as realists whose church must exist in the world and must break its own ethical commandments by taking enough thought to the morrow to still be there tomorrow saying, take no thought for the morrow. So a relationship with power of some kind is inevitable because it's mm. still a relationship with power to say, no, we won't have any of that. Thank you very much. And that has knock-on consequences too in terms of what you ask other people, other people to do. So it seems to me that in some ways the humility that would be appropriate, the modesty of being a modest companion wouldn't necessarily mean that we pulled our horns in and did less and how smaller buildings than this one um, it might be in the way we talk about the inevitability of being wrong it might be it might be in taking more emotional risks mm -hmm. and not hiding in the public solemnity of our worship in some ways but again you can um, the public solemnity of worship has value because that can be that can be the rope you hold with your hand while you fail to feel whatever it is that you felt once and would like to feel again sometime. Mm -hmm. Liturgy is a net for catching precious things so that we don't have to be constantly in a state of ecstatic perception ourselves. I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly high church Anglicanism, uh, Ang Anglican. Um, and I would be, I don't want humility to mean that, um, that we decide that evening prayer is, is, is cold and stuffy. Um, formal language isn't cold and stuffy. What, what is cold is pretense at perfection, mm. which we mustn't do. That's not a policy, though. So um, of course, I've um, talked long enough for that, talk that question away, I hope. <laughs> I'm thinking of Bill Vanston's famous comment now that um, the church is like a swimming pool because all the noise comes from the shallow end. And uh, I, of I often That's wonder whether a little indeed. bit more quiet uh, yes. silence would educate the soul better than a lot of noise in, in hmm. synods. But there we are, showing my bias. Uh, one last question that's come through, which I think yep. I'll take a guess here that this question will resonate with quite a few people, including sitting at this table. Yes. What can you do when you have wanted and prayed to believe all your life and still are not comfortable or confident to say and mean, I believe in God? You say... Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Um, my experience is that faith is the intimate companion of doubt and that to raise the possibility of belief 
is to invite doubt to be as serious a prospect, that it's an endless two-step between faith and doubt. Um, the enemy is certainty. The enemy is certainty because certainty goes with knowledge and knowledge is not vouchsafed to us in this place. What we have is, is hope and the sense that our occasional intuitions of grace fit together accurately with our sense of how human life works. I think there is a virtue in a, a fidelity and a hope which never reaches assurance. I think it is better to be facing towards the hope of generosity than to give up on it, even if you never know whether you're facing something real or not. I mean, I, I, I'm going to thank you in a minute and tell people what we do next, but uh, I always really want the speaker to be able to send us out with that one thought that was going to transform our lives forever. I think, I think that was my best effort at it that I just said, yes. actually. Yes. I mean, I, I want to then round this up um, and to do so by saying that I, I mean, listening to you, and to the questions that have come through. And by the way, I, I, I apologize if I haven't asked your question. Um, a lot of questions came in, and I'm not surprised by that. So apologies if I didn't get round to your question. But the church speaks a lot about truth. Yes. It hasn't been so good at honesty. And as you have bravely stumbled and tried to describe what can't be described to to try and describe the things that we we know and feel but uh, can't always express or justify even you are where we are and that is refreshing and healing for a lot of people including myself what i love about the book is that you make strange um, spiritual possibility sound familiar and that's no mean achievement uh, today um, you ignore that sort of paralysis of analysis that goes on in this God debate that sort of vivisectionist attitude mm -hmm. to religion doesn't get us anywhere and your book really does pay tribute to the losses and the loves of, of living on earth and to that sense of the beyond in our midst. And there is, and this is the final comment I have, and I want to thank you for this evening, your descriptions in it of Jesus and his teaching and of the community called church that, that look at one another because you all know that you failed and therefore you have the courage to look at one another and then break bread together. There is such beauty in the ordinariness that you see there. And for that honesty and for that perception and for that faith, I thank you on behalf of everybody here tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.